This morning, I want to bring a lesson to the topic of the promises of God. The promises of God in the Bible. I ask you this question. Have you ever made a promise? Maybe one that you didn't keep? You ever thought about that? Remember as kids, we say, ah, promise me. Pinky promise. That's what they do now, eh? pinky promise. Uh, cross your heart. Hope to die. Sickle needle in my eye. That ain't that right? Uh, I promise. What about anyone made a promise that they didn't keep? I think I, I've been guilty of that. And, and I can remember feeling guilty. I can remember feeling bad. Uh, that if I promise someone, it, it goes, let me put that in country, country slang. When you give a man your word, you keep it. That's what that means. I've tried to instill that in my family and my children. If you tell a man something, you better do it. Um, don't go back on it. Nobody wants a man who doesn't, or a young lady who doesn't keep a promise. And young ladies and young men, when it comes to dating and marrying, when you promise that mate that you're going to love them and care for them and be with them forever, that's what God meant. Don't, don't say it. Don't do it if you don't mean it. Don't promise if you don't mean it. It's better to take and go parting ways now than for someone to break that promise later on in a marriage. But you know, a promise is a declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specified. It's a declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect something. The word promise appears over 100 times in the Bible. The Bible contains many different types of promises. Those who are made to oneself, one who's made to man to man, and from man to God, and God to man. But I can tell you this morning, the promises of God are certain and will not be broken. Man may let you down here and man may not keep his promises and he may say, I, I will do this and I'll do that and, and not keep them. But God, when he says, I will promise and I will do something, God will do it. You see, when we make promises, we don't always keep them, whether on, on purpose or purposely. On an unpurpose, rather. That's the way mankind is. You see, the promises of God are precious. In the Bible, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, or let's say chapter, chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4. In, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, the Bible says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us 
exceeding, exceeding great joy, great and uh, precious promises. I'll get it down in a second. That by these we might be partakers of the divine nature having uh, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Those precious promises. God's promises are unfailing. 1 Kings 8 and 56, God's promises will occur. And speaking of Abraham, if you remember in the book of Romans, in chapter 4, in verses 19 through 22, the Bible speaks of Abraham. And in verse 19 of chapter 4, it says to us, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he about, was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to also to perform. Speaking of God, God had promised, remember, Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age. hundred years old. Who would have thought? But Abraham says to not stagger, and he continued to rely upon God. The Lord's promises are true. They are true when, when he says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, if you remember, the Lord is not slack concerning his what? Promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward and not willing that any, or not should any perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God is faithful in his promises. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. For he is faithful that promised. You know, in the Bible, God made two, basically two different types of promises. One being unconditional and one being Conditional. In Genesis 9, we find the promise from our God that the earth will never be destroyed again by water. And no matter how big the floods in the Cumberland River gets, the world will never be destroyed by water because why? God has promised that. The Lord will return. He's promised that. Matthew 5 and 13, 31 and 32, he has promised those things. He will return. He will come back. I am coming back, he says. John 14, I go to a prayer place for you. He says, I will come again. The Lord's coming back, folks. There's going to be a judgment day. He promised it. And when you go... To the book of John in chapter 5, he promised. He promised that there would be a resurrection. In John chapter 5 and verses 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There will be a resurrection. The graves will open one day. 
the Lord will come back. Why? Because God has promised it. Those are the unconditional. You don't have to meet a condition because those things are going to happen. But now you look at the thought of the conditional promises that God has given us. In the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 10, it speaks of the crown of life. Be thou what? Faithful. If you want a crown of life and you want to go to heaven and you want to live where Jesus is, and you want that crown of life, you've got to be faithful. There's a condition there. There's something connected to that promise. You take and look in the Bible in, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Notice what the scripture says to us concerning the forgiveness of sin. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now there's a condition. There's a but there, isn't there? Yeah. He says you can have forgiveness of your sin and be cleansed from all of your sin and have fellowship with the Lord's church and the people in the Lord's church and the body of Christ. He says if... You walk in the light. There's a condition. There's a condition there. In Matthew 11, you go back to the book of Matthew in chapter 11, and you're very familiar with this passage, also sometimes referred to as the invitation of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 30, the Bible reads, it says, Come unto, you, come unto, all, come unto me, you all, that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your, soul, your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, there's a condition there. You've got to come. If you're going to seek rest from the ways of sin and the burden of sin that you are carrying this morning. You know, I can, rem I can remember often every year we take and sow seed in a, in a field for deer. I can remember toting bags up that hill. And boy, I was like, man, I need some rest. And here come my son. He'd say, Dad, you going to make it? Oh, it felt relief because the burden of that 50-pound bag was tough on the old man. But the Lord says if you're, going to relieve, if you're going to get rid of those sins and the burden that sin brings to your life, he says there comes a condition. You have to come unto me. Come unto me is obeying the gospel. Hearing the gospel and coming to Christ in obedience to what you have heard. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Our needs will be furnished. But what's the condition there? You've got to seek him first. If you want things in your life to be better, if you want uh, all the, the, the and I'm saying that a, a Christian's life is a bed of roses, because it's not. Those thorns come. That increase our faith. And if you want all those things added to you, you've got to seek Him first. <coughs> seek the kingdom of God first. 
So, what has God promised us in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it was read just a moment ago, starting in verse 14 and moving through chapter 7 and verse 1. What has God promised you and I this morning? Notice these promises. In verse 16, we start out in 14. He gives us a warning here, doesn't he? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He says, don't be with people in the world and, and sinful people. Oh, don't isolate yourself from them, but don't be yoked with them. Don't be tied to them. When we talk about yoke, we talk about two animals with a yoke around their neck that is pulling together. And in that situation, and on the farm as I was growing up, you couldn't have two different sized mules or, or whatever because it messed up everything, didn't it? Yeah, they had to be similar in size and, and it had to be together and pulling together and, and all these things. But he says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't do it. Why do we preach so much to our young people? Marry a Christian. Marry someone who believes what you believe. Date those people. And convert them if you can. But if you can, like the Bible says about sin, wash your hands. Shake the dust off your feet. You have to move on. But he says, don't be unequally yoked. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what co communion hath light with darkness? And what concord or agree with hath Christ with Belial? Why does Christ, how can Christ be connected to Satan? We know that. Satan and Christ are what? Two different people, two different things, two different analogies, two different everything about everything of each other. Christ has no connection to Satan. But what part he that believeth with an infidel or unbeliever? Now notice in verse 16. He says, he will dwell in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You go on to verse 17, I will receive you. Verse 18, I will be to you a father and you shall be to me sons and daughters. Notice the connection of all of these words. It, it, the connection is fellowship. What we have in common. In the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, it said they had what? All things common. They believed the same thing. They worshiped the same way. There's no stronger marriage than when you put one Christian man as the head of that home and one Christian woman who is, plays her role in that home to that man and to that home. And with it is a, with God, Nothing can break it. Amen. But first, you've got to have that man and that woman who believe the same thing. You see, over in Ephesians, Paul writes and compares the relationship of man and woman together to the Lord's church. And in the Lord's church, there's no division. We're all one. And when we marry, we become one. 
but I can't become one with my mate if my mate does not believe the same thing that I believe or vice versa. There is no unity in the home and that is not what God said. That's what he's talking about. Don't be unequally yoked. It causes a division in the home when that happens and on down the road and, and years later uh, the parents get older and, and their children are off running in, in, and frolicking in the world and they say, what happened? Well, I can tell you what happened. They didn't see a mother and a father who believed in one and was unity in the church and in Christ. That's what happened. But you look at what he's saying there in 2 Corinthians. There's a fellowship. There's a partnership. This morning I have a fellowship and I have a partnership with Jesus Christ and through his blood. And that same partnership goes down into my marriage and my home. Without that, I don't have a godly home. But God promises those things. I'll walk with you. I'll tote you. I'll pull you up when you fall down. I'll give you all these things. But there's a condition. You've got to be obedient to me and stay faithful. You see, in these words, they have common a family unit a belonging, a protection, an encouragement, and love. All these things that we mentioned are vital in a wholesome physical relationship, but even more so in a spiritual relationship with God. These are promises, folks, this morning that God has made to you and to me. And let me tell you this morning, they have eternal value. They don't have a money value. If we could put a money value on it, it would be an infinity amount of money. You couldn't put a total value on it. These are promises that we must long for as a Christian. But remember... Again, some of God's promises are conditional. So how do we receive these promises that are mentioned in this text? Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, verse 14. Again, we've made the analogy with two animals already of the same size and kind and temperament. An ox and a mule, they wouldn't work real well together. They'd be poor yoke fellows. A full-grown ox and a calf. Couldn't work on them together. If you remember in the Mosaic Law, it forbade the joining of a mixed team. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10. In my study, uh, I, I really didn't know this was in there, <laughs> to be honest with you. But in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 10, Thou shalt not plow with an ox or a donkey together. So using this familiar and truth and illustration, Paul teaches the Corinthians of the need for their being matched up only with others of like precious faith. You know, if a believer is bound to an unbeliever, the believer will be unduly influenced by the unbeliever. We see that in relationships of dating. We see it in relationships of marriage. 
They will be heavily influenced by the unbeliever. People say, oh, no. No, I'm a strong Christian. Won't influence me. How many of you and how many can I count on our hands today who dated and married? And again, this is not always the common or true thing because I... As Brother Brent said when he was here, he said, I scared people marrying in church, but he said, now it's a married Christian. Somebody who you know is a Christian. But how many do we count today that are out of the Lord's church because of a relationship with an unbeliever who influenced them to say, oh, you don't have to go to church. Come on, let's go to the lake. Let's go fishing. Come on, let's sleep in. We was out late last night. Let's sleep in. But driving this point home, Paul asked two rhetorical questions. What fellowship, he says, does righteousness and iniquity have? What communion exists between light and darkness? As I was this morning, as I was getting up early this morning, about six something, I got up and it was still kind of dark outside a little bit. And I can remember walking into the restroom and I was doing this number. I was going, where's the light at? I thought somebody had moved it. But I finally found it. When I turned it on, guess what? I could see everything. You see, that's what darkness is. What fellowship does light have with darkness? It's totally opposite. In one you can see, in one you can't. Just be out coon hunting one night and you light go out. <laughs> see what you feel like. You'll fall over everything. You see... These promises will be beyond our grasp, our grasp if we are yoked with the world. It's inconsistent and impossible to be yoked with the world and God at the same time. You can't hold the hand of the devil and hold the hand of God at the same time and be in communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can't do it. And many people today are trying to do that. They're trying to hold the hand of the world, but then they're trying to hold the hand of Christ. And that's a tough balance to try to make. Actually, it's gross and it makes God sick. You see, <clears throat> verse 17 of our text is coming out from among them and be separate. And touch no unclean thing. You see, the command is issued for the saints to be separate themselves from the entangling aliences or alliances, if you will, of the world and with those who do not believe. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 refers to Christians, those who are called out, those who are separate from the world, special. He called them special. You're a chosen generation. Priesthood. You're different than the world. You're not like the rest of the world. And you go on in chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. You see, our flesh is defiled when our hands and feet and bodies do the bidding of sin. Our spirits as well when we contemplate sin with pleasure, 
You see, Paul warns, warns us, and not only against all actual contact with sensuality and sin, but also against that consent of the Spirit which often defiles the inner life. The work of purification is frequently referred to as the work of God. You see, we had to be different. God's promised us these things. He said, I'll be with you. I'll walk with you. To do these things, we must look to God with reverence and fear, folks. All contact with impurity in us is a defilement of the temple of God. Do you realize that when you were baptized and you put Christ on, that your body as a whole, physically and spiritually, is the temple of God. God dwells in you. Now that brings a whole new light of what we put into our bodies, doesn't it? Yeah. All these bad habits we got. Yeah. If there's something that I'm putting in my body that can harm the temple of God, sure. You remember in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 3? Yes, you remember it. Verse 17, if any man defile or destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Our bodies are the temple of God. And that includes them donuts that I like. You see, we got to think along those lines. This body, we got to take care of it. Physically and spiritually. This morning, meeting, meeting the conditions that we have discussed with all that is implied in the scripture that we've looked at, God will be a father to us. And he will treat you and I as sons and daughters. The way we live, though, has a tremendous impact on our relationship with God. Number one, we must first become a Christian. And be freed from the sin and the guilt of sin from our past. And then according to 1 John chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And develop those Christian graces that we read about in 2 Peter chapter 1. And faithfully worship him in Acts 2, as we read in Acts 2 and 42. And work in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This morning, you hear that, what I just said? The way we live has a tremendous impact on our relationship with God. This morning, let me ask you a simple question as we close this sermon. How are you living? How are you living this morning? This very moment in time, how are you living? Are you guilty of, of, of profanity and, and, and ugly talking and, and, and jesting and joking and filthy language and those types of things? Are you guilty of that? Are you guilty of lying? 
Are you guilty of not being faithful to the Lord? Have you been baptized and added to the Lord's church? That's a simple question. If you have not been baptized into the Lord's church, hear me this morning, please. You cannot go to heaven. And if you have been baptized and you haven't lived faithfully, no sin can go to heaven. And if you have sin in your life, you can't go to heaven. As I was a young parent, I always thought about my children. I said, if my young children, at the age of non-accountability, were young, number one, I thought about how God blessed me with children. Children are precious. That's why I do what I do. Children are precious. But as a young child, as a young parent, having young children, I thought, I don't want to be separated from this child. At any time, any moment, I don't want to be separated from my children. I love them. Oh, I wouldn't even go fishing sometimes because I wanted to be with Mike and I wanted to be with Abigail and Adriana, my good wife, because I love them. But something hit me one day 